We are uh, concluding uh, this series that we've been uh, going through uh, the book of First Peter, and so if you want to grab your Bible and turn to First Peter chapter five, it's close to the back, almost all the way to the book of Revelation. Uh, towards the end, it was a letter that was written by the apostle Peter. Uh, the one who denied Jesus three times, the one who walked on water with Jesus, uh, the one who uh, experienced Jesus' uh, restoration after he was resurrected from the grave. Uh, that very Peter wrote this letter uh, to, the, to the believers, the followers of Jesus that were spread out all over the Roman Empire to encourage them and by the power of the Holy Spirit to encourage us here in this day and age. And, um, and so we called this, uh, this series The Fiery Trial. And it's always kind of interesting because you uh, when we look at a book, we try and grab a theme or an element and we, and we, um, and we make a graphic and we kind of tailor the whole series around that sort of thematic. And then by the end, you kind of get to go back and look at it again and say, man, did we get it right? Like, was, did we name it the right thing? And, um, and I really believe that we did. I mean, I think it's amazing to see how much Peter speaks about trials and not just the reality of trials, but uh, how to really, in a practical and tangible way, deal with the trials that we face in our life, what to, what to expect, how to endure through them. And so I hope that over the past 11, 12 weeks uh, that you've taken away some real tangible things that you've been able to apply into your life that maybe have changed the way that you've thought about some things, maybe changed the way that you've acted in some ways. I know for me, um, this time going through it, just this whole uh, question of submission and the way that submission relates to us, our ability to go through trials how many trials come upon us because of our unwillingness to submit to the earthly uh, orders that God has put in place, and how our rejection of those things is really just an amplification of the, the, the inner rebel in our heart uh, that, that caused Adam and Eve to rebel against God in the garden, and that we each have a, a we're stained with that as we're born, in it, and, it, and it surfaces sometimes in unlikely ways. And so, so that's just been a really interesting thing uh, to ponder and think about. Um, I go back to the sermon that Dave preached. It was the second or third one, and it was just this call to, to holiness, to be holy as, as God is holy. And uh, frankly, as, as Christians, sometimes we, we struggle with those sort of passages a little bit because um, um, our, our modern take on uh, American Christianity is that God is a God of, of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and prosperity, and your Father wants to give you good gifts. And the Bible says all those things, they're all true, but they're balanced by the fact that God is a God of, of righteousness and judgment and that God uh, hates sin. And he wants us to be like him. And, and through, through the, the message of First Peter, through things that have uh, transpired over the past several months, I've come to a place where I think I hate sin more than I've ever hated it in my life. And, and that's a really good thing, right? Um, but the thing is, when we, when we learn to hate sin, it doesn't mean that we're suddenly going around and be like, there's sin and there's sin. We're like the anti-Oprah, right? Like, you've got a sin and you've got a sin, right? That's not who we want to be, <laughs> Um, when we become to a place where we really hate sin, we start to look at our own life and we say, like, man, where are those little things where I'm just getting over a little too far into the gray areas? I'm rationalizing and I'm justifying and I'm, I'm accepting these smaller sins in my life because when you see that these small sins are, are, share the same DNA as these, these big, ugly sins, you're like, man, I don't want any part of any of that because I see what it does. Um, many of you know um, I'm part of a, a group of pastors here in the area that meet together to talk about racial reconciliation. There's African-American pastors, there's white pastors, there's some Hispanic pastors. We come together. Um, it's, a, it's a diverse group. And uh, just really talk about, uh, frankly, about the issues that, that we're experiencing in our culture today and how the gospel can be the solution for those things. Um, but, man, we've been doing it for almost a year, 
And this far in the journey, it's still just been a journey of understanding each other. We have to get to the place where we understand each other in order to move forward. And so a step of that, this past Thursday, uh, Trina and I got to go with a lot of the other pastors and their wives down to the African American History Museum in Washington, D.C. And um, man, it was a powerful experience. And uh, if you ever get a chance to go, I recommend you got to get tickets ahead of time. It's like like a hot ticket and they pack them in there. But um, man, it was... uh, it was just profound to see the, the impact and the depth of, of this sin of, of slavery, of devaluing another human being's life, and what that did, what the, the ugliness of what that looked like, and the way that that ramification has spilled over into our present-day context and how it's still having effects in our culture today. And so you go and you're just like, wow, I can't, I can't believe that it was ever like this. I can't believe that people were like this. Um, but in the same way, we look at it and we say, okay, what am I going to do with that? I've got to bring it into my life, into my present tense, and I've got to say, what, in what way am I embracing the same sort of sin that led to that? You know, that was ugly, blatant, just wrong, um, dehumanizing behavior. But what I engage in, in little lies, in little fabrications, in little acts of prejudice, <laughs> that it's, it's really the same thing. It's just an extension of that. And so we begin by rooting it out of our own hearts, and then we're in a position to be used by God in the situation all around us. And so, um, man, and it was good. It was good to just go and to have some really good open dialogue uh, about that. And so, man, those are some of the things that I've been learning in First Peter. I hope that you guys have been learning uh, some things and grabbing some things. But the thing that I want to uh, steer us towards today is Peter has one more surprise for us. In the final section of the letter of First Peter, a letter that has been incredibly surprising the whole way throughout, he ends it with a final surprising message. And it's the connection between our humility and our suffering. The connection between adopting a posture of humility, of being a humble person, and how that equips us and enables us to go through suffering. It's not where you would expect him to land, right? <laughs> You'd expect him to bring it home with the, the big haymaker of, like, uh, uh, of just taking radical action or just incredible faith. Or, or he could have gone so many different directions, but where he chooses to end it is with humility. And, and I'm so glad that he did because I think there's a lot of powerful things for us to learn from it. And so let's, uh, let's open up with a word of prayer, and then we're going to dig into uh, the word this morning. Father, I thank you for, um, man, I thank you that you... Uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, inspired Peter to write this letter, not only to help the Christians in his day and age, but to help Christians throughout the centuries and to help us right here in this room today, that when you, when you had Peter write these words, that you had us in mind and that you wanted to share something with us about how to be closer to you. You wanted to reveal more of your heart to us so that we could be more aligned with you and uh, so that we could endure through the trials that we all will face well, with greater joy uh, with greater hope, uh, just with, just with a, a, a sense of your presence and your nearness to us in it. And so as we open up your word, I pray that you would simultaneously open up our hearts to receive what it is that you want each one of us to learn this morning. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, you can follow along with me. First Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1 says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. 
And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Um, I love, I love the, the endings of these letters. It's, it's just a reminder that these are... These were written as letters to people, right? He's like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm sending this letter. I'm putting it into this guy's hands. He's going to bring it to you. And, and, and make sure you say hi to this person and, and greet this person who, who I love and respect, right? Like, it's, it's a reminder that these, um, uh, we, we value them as God's word, uh, but they were originally written as letters from, from one believer sharing with another believer how to walk with God properly. And I think that context is really helpful. Um, and so we're going to look at this incredible idea of humility. And there's really three Three things that I want us to look at. First of all, what is humility from a biblical standpoint? What is, what is humility? What, how is it defined? What does it look like? Number two, what does it do for us? What does, it, what, do, what does it do in us? And then third, what does it enable us to do? So what is humility? What does it do? And then what does it enable us to do once we've got it? Okay? So for the first question, what is humility? If I were to tell you right now, hey, I've identified the most humble person at Riverside Community Church, and I'm about to bring them up on stage, right? What are you visualizing? <laughs> what kind of person would you expect to emerge out of the seats as the most humble person in the church? What kind of thoughts go through your mind? I don't see anybody taking the stage. Just <laughs> We can disqualify anyone who would probably do that, right? Um, you might think like, Wow, I'm, I'm kind of expecting the unexpected. It's probably going to be somebody I'm not really thinking of, probably somebody who's under the radar, probably somebody who's a little bit nondescript. Maybe they don't stand out. Uh, might be somebody who outwardly there's no excellent quality. There's nothing that, I, that would necessarily draw me to them, but, um, uh, but maybe it's somebody that I never even met. I've seen, you know, we kind of passed, but we just never even had a conversation. They're kind of quiet. They're kind of reserved. They're kind of to themselves. Um, and, and all those things may possibly be true, right? But... Um, but in some ways, our definition of humility, of, of a humble person, is, is very limited, right? We, we kind of equate it with mediocrity. <laughs> we kind of think of somebody as humble who's just kind of, you know, just below the radar, just kind of not popping up on anybody's screen, like you don't really, you don't really know who they are, they don't stand out in a crowd. Um, but, but biblically, this is not what we're talking about. Um, C.S. Lewis, a uh, great Christian author, uh, does, a, does an awesome job of kind of laying this out for us in his book, Mere Christianity. And so I've got the quote for you up here on, 
on the screen. But look at this. Look at how he defines humility and compare it with what might naturally pop into your mind. So he says this. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that he, of course, is, is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think that you are not conceited, it means that you are very conceited indeed. <laughs> and so C.S. Lewis kind of quantifies it in this way. He says, he says, whatever you think of, you know, in humility, you might think about that person that's always like whenever they do anything, you try and give them a compliment and they're the best at deflecting it. Like, hey, man, your hair looks nice. Um, this hair, I don't even know how, you know, whatever. It's, uh, I just got out of bed. I don't even really know. Hey, I really appreciated what you did the other day. Oh, it was nothing. I, like, I barely even put any effort into it. It was like, you know, I don't, right? This kind of, it's really false humility. And it's a reflection of people understanding like, hey, I, I shouldn't feel comfortable taking compliments. I know I'm not supposed to be prideful. So when somebody gives me a compliment, I'm just going to deflect it. I'm going to bat it away. I'm not going to believe that there could possibly be anyone, anything good in myself. And so ultimately what it leads to is this idea that somebody who's humble is somebody with a really low self-esteem, right? That they think that there is nothing good or praiseworthy in them. And that's what we think humility is. But, but, but the Bible shows us a different picture of humility. Uh, really, humility is tied to our... Um, our, our thought of ourself, our self-forgetfulness, right? How constantly aware are we of ourself? How much are we the center of our own universe? Uh, to be humble, in a lot of ways, is to be the opposite of being selfish. Uh, instead of being self-centered, you're other-centered. Instead of saying, what benefits me? You say, what benefits my community, right? That's, that's what a humble person does. And so a humble person can be an incredibly outstanding person. They may shine like a star, it has a lot more to do with what's going on internally, how they're processing what's going on, than it does how the world outside perceives them. Because honestly, they're not too worried about how the world outside perceives them. This is what real humility from a biblical standpoint looks like. Now, now let's dig back into the passage and let's ask this question. What does humility do for us? And, and it promises at least seven things here that I see that are really profound and powerful when we adopt a humble posture. The first thing is this, it, it positions us to receive grace. It says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now in the dictionary, pride is defined as a feeling or deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements, the achievements of those with, one whom, is with whom one is closely associated, or from qualities or possessions that are widely admired. Um, I think for the most part, we can, we can kind of put the third one aside, but those first two, to, to take incredible, uh, deep pleasure, satisfaction, or a, a good feeling derived from your own achievements or the achievements of the group that you associate with. That's, that's the sort of pride that the Bible says that God is opposed to. And if you think about our society and the context that we're operating in right now, um, I mean, I, you know, I'm... I'm a middle-aged guy, right? <laughs> I'm like 40-something, so I've seen a bit. I haven't seen as much as some of you. I've seen more than others, um, but it feels like we're as polarized as I can ever remember our country being, 
And so if you want to have any sort of, people don't even really want to talk politics because if you talk about anything political, instead of actually having a, a discourse about the pros and cons of, of a situation or a thing, people fall very quickly into line with, with, with their party position, right? The three or four talking points. And so, so those that, that, that despise our president, there is nothing that he could do that they would ever feel as praiseworthy, right? He could save a little old lady from a fire and deliver a baby, and, and they would be like, well, he did that, for, right? Like, they could see no redeeming qualities in him whatsoever. And for those uh, that, that love and admire our president, they can see no wrong. And so he can say the most horrible thing, he can do the most horrible thing, and they're unwilling to acknowledge that there's any flaw whatsoever. But the reality is, is that every single person in this room is a mixture of, 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 of moments when we reflect the image of God's glory well and moments when our sinful flesh uh, rears its ugly head and we do really uh, horrible things. And so uh, I just wonder if we look at celebrities and political figures and we, and we do it uh, in such a way that we either classify them as purely good or purely evil, I wonder if we're not doing the same thing in our own hearts with ourselves, <laughs> And classifying ourselves as either purely good or purely evil. If we, if we think we're purely evil, we have a loathing, a self-loathing, and we're self-destructive, and we're, and we're miserable. But if we think that we're purely good, we're deceived, and we rationalize away every mistake that we make, and we justify every, everything that we do. We can never just acknowledge it like, yeah, man, my sin raised its, its ugly head there, and I am so sorry. That's not who I mean to be. I know I did that, but that, that's not me. That's not what I want to be. That's not what I'm striving to be. Will you, will you help me? Keep me accountable to not be that person because that's not who I want to be. How rare is it that somebody says that, right? But that's what humility leads us to. And here's what it says. It says that God uh, opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And it makes sense, right? Because what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. It's getting what you don't deserve. A proud person is very sure that they deserve a lot of things, right? <laughs> in our pride, we're like, I deserve better than this. Don't they know who they're talking to? I, I deserve, if they've got that, I deserve up here, right? We can, a proud person is continually very aware of what they think they deserve. And so they're not in a position to receive something they don't deserve from God. But a humble person says, hey, you know, man, I probably deserve far worse than what I have right now. And, and every good and perfect gift that I get, it comes from the Father. I'm, and so every time something good comes along, you see it as an evidence of grace. Man, God, thank you for blessing me. Thank you for giving me what I don't deserve. Man, I can think back in my, my childhood, my high school years. Man, there were so many times that God did not give me what I deserved. If, if the police had shown up at the wrong moment, right? If, if, if things had gone differently. Um, man, thank God when I was growing up, they didn't have cell phone cameras, right? Like... Much of, much of what we did was hidden in the dark ages, right? And so, um, but, but by the grace of God, if I got what I really deserved, it wouldn't have been good. Um, so when we're humble, it puts us in a position to receive the grace of God. Second, uh, it puts us in a position where God will exalt us. And the thing that's unsaid there is that God will exalt us or else we won't be exalted. A humble person says, God, you see everything. You have the power to do everything. And I will be elevated and exalted at the point at which you choose to do that. But I will resist the temptation to take it into my own hands. I'll resist the temptation to make my own way, to exalt myself by my own means, by my own pride, by my own strength, and to lift me up into the position that I'm sure that I deserve. Because if I really deserved it, you would give it to me. <laughs> uh, David, King David, is, is a great biblical study on humility in this way. When David was a, a boy, he was out in the fields watching the sheep. Uh, the prophet 
came to his house, his father's house, and said, line up all your sons before me. I want to anoint the next king. They lined up all the sons, but nobody bothered to go to the field to get David, right? Prophet goes down. He's like, I don't see him here. Isn't there another son? And they're like, well, yeah, there's, there's one more. We can go get him. And they bring him in, and the prophet anoints David as a young man. And yet he didn't become the king until much, much later. And there were so many times that people came to him and said, David, you've been anointed as the king. Take what's yours. Take your rightful place on the throne. King Saul's a wicked king. Overthrow him. Strike him down and take what God has promised to you. And David said, I will not lay my hand on the Lord's anointed. David understood that he would be exalted when God chose to exalt him. Because he wasn't the one that chose to be anointed in the first place. And so he trusted in God's timing to do that. Where's that? Where, where in your life are you struggling with that? Is it, is it a promotion that you think you deserve? Is it, is it recognition that you think somebody has to give to you? Is it, is it, is it some, sort of, uh, uh, some sort of thing that you just desperately feel that you deserve and you're tempted to cut corners to get there? Because that's what Peter's been talking about the whole time. He says, two wrongs don't make a right, right? And there's so many times that we think like, man, I deserve this and I know this is promised to me and, and this person did all these things and so if I just kind of cut the corner a little bit over here, surely... Uh, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big of a deal. But humility of heart says, if I will be exalted, God will exalt me. And if I will not be exalted, it's because God didn't ordain that for me, and I'm okay with that. Third, it allows us to hand our anxiety over to God, because it says that he cares for us. Think about anxiety. I, I mean, I wrestle with anxiety of different things. It's, it's interesting. As my kids are getting older, we see in each of them different reflections of, of Katrina and I. And um, Eloise, our middle child, is, is the one that, unfortunately, she's inherited a little bit of my natural tendency towards anxiety in certain things. And so there'll be moments where, you know, every morning when it's violin lesson time, her stomach hurts. Right? She's like, ah, oh, my stomach hurts. I don't know. You know, right? Um, and, and I grew up dealing with that same sort of thing. And, and here's the thing with anxiety. Anxiety is, is quite often it's worry and it's fear and it's just a, a, a feeling of dis, dis-ease. You're not, not at ease over things that you have no control over that you have no power to change, that you have no, no power to do anything about. And so you waste all this emotional energy and you carry all this baggage with you on things that are completely out of your hands. And so what the Bible says is a humble person will recognize, they'll have the wisdom to say, I don't have the ability to change my situation. I can't, I can't make these things disappear, but what I can do is I can hand this over to God and say, God, I believe that you love me, that you care for me, and that you're bigger than any of my worries or anxieties, and so I'm going to entrust this into your hands. I'm going to cast my cares upon you, and I'm going to let you carry them because they're too big for me. They're going to crush me, and I'm going to ask you to carry them for me. And whatever you ordain to happen, whatever you let happen, I will accept as your will, but I won't waste my energy worrying about it. Man, I, I got to preach this self to, my, to, to myself all the time. I'm not, I'm not telling you that I understand it, and now I got it, right? But I know it as a principle. I know it as true. And so when I'm tempted towards anxiety, I'm reminded of the biblical truth. Hey, no, the Bible says cast my anxiety on God. Let him carry it. He cares for me. He loves for me. Fourth, it says that he protects us from our fierce enemy. Your adversary prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. A proud person will say, I can stand against the enemy. I've got enough willpower. I've got enough strength. I've got enough smarts and wit. I, uh, he won't suck me into his traps. I, you know, I've seen other people fall for it, but not me, right? A proud person will say, I'm going to go it alone. A humble person says, hey, we have an enemy. This is a reality. 
There's a, a spiritual forces that are aligned against us, but the God that we serve is so far greater. <laughs> the end result is not in question. The victory has been won by Jesus. And so I'm not going to go out there foolishly and try and tackle the enemy by myself, but what I am going to do is I'm going to, to lean into the relationship that I have with the Savior, the one who has already defeated him, and I'm going to trust in that. I'm going to pray, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. I'm going to trust God to fight that battle for me. I'm not going to try and do it by myself. I'm also not going to arrogantly think that I don't have anything to worry about. <laughs> that I'm not going to arrogantly ignore the fact that the enemy would love to kill and destroy me. I'm very aware of that as the pastor of this church. If I, if I made a huge moral error, it would have devastating impacts on, on this church, on my family, on the people that I love and care about. And so I'm on guard against that. I don't put myself in situations that are, that, are, that are going to lead to that. And I know that you guys pray for me, and I appreciate that because I recognize that there's, there, there's burden. You guys see the headlines, right? This happens way too much. The pastors of big churches and, and religious leaders and authors, and um, it's, almost, uh, it's almost like a monthly occurrence that some big name all of a sudden is like, did you hear what happened to this person? Did you see what happened to them? Man, and the damage of that is, is profound. And part of that comes from an arrogance to think like, well, it's not going to be me. To, to, to ignore the fact that we have an enemy. Number five, it reminds us that we're not alone. It says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that others are suffering as well. Pride leads us to throw a pity party. Nobody's ever had it as bad as me. Nobody has to suffer the way I have to suffer. God, this is not fair. Why, why would you put this burden on me? Oh, man, everyone around me is doing so great, and I'm, Right? And so it actually amplifies your trial. You're going to go through trials anyways. But when you assume that you've got it worse than everyone else, it just multiplies it. It just makes it worse. But a humble person says, hey, yeah, I've, I've got some trials, and some of them are really hard. Some of them are really breaking me down. But I know I'm not the only one. I know there's people all over that are struggling. Man, if you want a perspective shift, go down to Washington and go through that museum and, and see what was happening during the era of slave trade. And, and read the stories about the people being shoved into the bottom of these boats, ripped out of their homeland, forced to work uh, in a foreign country for cruel masters, some that would rather dive into the ocean and, and die there, get eaten by sharks than to go to the, right? Like that's, man, that's a trial. And so there's a lot of times where in humility, we just need to pull ourselves out of our pity party. Yeah, we, we, we face trials. And I know in this room, there are some serious trials. There's some people that are going through some hard hard things. But you're not alone. God sees it. There are others that have endured through, and by putting their faith in Christ, have, have triumphed, and you can do the same. So resist the temptation in your pride to, to throw a pity party for yourself. Uh, humility gives us a perspective that suffering won't last forever, and this is tied to the last one. He says, after you have suffered a little while, sometimes when we're suffering, we think it's never going to end. When I get the common cold, Day two of it, I'm convinced that my life is over, right? <laughs> I'll never feel good again. I'll never be able to breathe, right? But, but, but you know, a few days later, you're, you're back to it. But when we're in the depth of our struggle, we think that it's never going to end. The Bible says, hey, this, after a little while, and listen, here's, here's a hard reality. If you're suffering, there might be some things that you're suffering with that you may suffer with from now until the day you die. But in the grand scheme of eternity, it's just a little while. And once that time has passed, God himself is going to come. And it leads into these beautiful promises, right? 
I love this, this, this verse. It's one of my favorites. Verse, verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That when we humble ourselves, we say, hey, I'm going to give up on my efforts of self-salvation. I'm going to stop trying to restore myself and my own strength. I'm going to quit trying to establish my name. I'm going to quit trying to prove to myself that I'm good and worthy of being loved. And I'm going to trust that God, after I've suffered a little while, that God himself is going to come. He's God is going to restore me. God is going to confirm me. God is going to strengthen me. God is going to establish me. I was watching a documentary yesterday. Um, it was about a, a freestyle motocross uh, rider named Brian Deegan. Have any of you guys ever heard of Brian Deegan? Anybody feel the Metal Militia and the X Games? Oh, good. We had two in the first service. We got none here. So, all right, good, good. Thank you, thank you. Um, so, uh, so let me set a little backstory. And then, you know, in the '90s, the X Games were just getting popular. They allowed motocross into it, and um, man, there was these renegades. These guys called the Metal Militia. They had mohawks. They had tattoos. They dressed all in black. They came riding in, listened to rock and roll music. Uh, they were partying all night before, and then they came out and they're flipping motorbikes in the day, right? And they were like, um, they were kind of like the bad guys of the sport. And, uh, and they just embraced this sort of rebellious, like, punk rock, like, we don't care about anything mentality. And the leader of the whole crew was this guy named Brian Deegan. And what it revealed in this, um, in this documentary was that when he was a real young guy, I want to say he was like 8 or 10 years old, his mom just up and left. Him and his siblings, his dad, it wasn't like they, they got divorced and she moved to the other side of town. She just disappeared out of their life, just abandoned them. And he had so much disappointment and hurt and anger over that, that, that he poured it out in the outlet he, that he had, which was riding motorcycles. And so he was a reckless rider. He would, he would take risks. He would do crazy things. And, and, and that recklessness paid off. And he started winning races. And he started to get, get known, but, but nobody wanted to sponsor him because he was, his behavior was so outrageous that none of the big companies wanted their name attached to him. And so suddenly this thing of freestyle motocross came around where they would go off jumps and they would do flips and do all these crazy things. And in that realm, he was start, able to start making a, a name for himself as the bad boy of the sport. Um, and at one point, he did a 360. So he went off a ramp and like did a 360 with his motorcycle and landed. He was the first person to ever do it. And, um, and in the interview, he said, man, as soon as I landed it, I thought, oh, no. Now what am I going to have to do next to top that, right? He's on this, this, this just drive for acceptance, this drive to finally prove that he is somebody, to prove that he's worthy of love, to prove that he, he deserves uh, good things. And so, but it was, it was insatiable. No matter how much money he won, no matter how much famous he got, no matter how many followers he had, it was never enough. And so he took bigger and bigger risks, and he had some bad spills, but he kept healing, he kept getting back on the bike. And finally, he, uh, he uh, was filming something for a television show. It wasn't prepped. It wasn't set up properly. And he tries to do a backflip, and he lands, and the handlebars uh, go into his gut. And um, they didn't puncture it. There was no blood or anything. But as soon as he landed, he's like, call an ambulance. He's like, something's really wrong. And he had ruptured a bunch of things inside of him. And so they took him to the hospital. They called his wife, and they said, he said hey, we have your husband. He's probably not going to make it. And as the doctor was getting ready to take him into surgery, he was conscious enough to, to talk to them. And he said, hey, is there anything that you want to tell your family? Is there something you want me to tell your family? Because it was that bad. He's like, I don't know if you're going to make it. And he was shocked. And so he goes into surgery. By the grace of God, he comes out the other side without a kidney <laughs> and, and with some things sewn up inside. But, um, but he said that was finally his wake-up call. 
And some of us, that's what we do, right? We're, we're trying so hard to earn a name for ourselves, to prove that we're worthy, to prove that we're good, to restore ourselves, to confirm ourselves, to establish ourselves. And, and he, his life story would tell you, you can't do it. it. You think that you get there and it's always just a little bit further down the road. It's just a little bit further down the road. And so he tried and tried and tried. And so finally he said that was his wake-up call. He quit racing motorcycles. Now he did go to racing cars instead, right? So still dangerous, but far less dangerous. Um, and he continued on. And so he's telling this story, and I'm watching it, and, um, and I'm like, this dude became a Christian. You know how you can just tell sometimes? Because what I saw is, even from the beginning as they're interviewing him, I'm like, I see humility. And that kind of humility doesn't come apart from the gospel. And so they never mentioned it in the whole show. Uh, they never talked about it. And I said to Trina, I was like, man, I was like, I was like, I was just waiting for him to say, like, and then I became a Christian, right? And so I go on and I read some articles from back when he had this accident in 2009. And sure enough, the New York Times wrote this article about the metal militia biker who became a Christian. And what he said is that when he had that wreck, he made a bargain with God. And he said, God, if you, if you let me live, if you let me make it through this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn my life around. I'm going to follow you. And so when he woke up out of that surgery... He opened up his Bible and he started reading it. And he found a, a pastor in a church and he got connected in and he became a believer. Not only him, but his entire metal militia crew ended up becoming followers of Jesus. And they're like, man, what is this going to do to our reputation? Like, what is this going to do for our brand that, that the bad boys have all now become Jesus followers, right? And that was in 2009. I don't know what's transpired in the, next, in the, in the last nine years. I don't know that he's walked the straight and narrow every day of that, of that path. But I saw in him a humility that you just don't see. And something amazing happened. He was trying to prove himself over and over again. Once he came to follow Christ, it gave him the ability to forgive. He actually reached out. He found his mother. He invited her back into his life. He invited her back into the family. He was able to forgive her. All the rage, all the fury that he felt toward her, all those years, and, and no accomplishment could take it away. Jesus took it away for him. He allowed Jesus to confirm him. He allowed Jesus to, to restore him. He allowed Jesus to strengthen him. He allowed Jesus to establish him. And I thought it was a beautiful picture. Um, the final piece that I want, I want to share with you, that's what humility does. What does it enable us to do? I've got a big, long quote from C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters up here. I'm not going to, I don't have time to read it all to you, but essentially what it, what it says is this, and if you've never read this, this is a great summer read. Uh, the premise is, is that it's like a, a senior demon writing to a junior demon, and they're writing back and forth, and, and this junior demon has been assigned a person that he's supposed to tempt and try and, and, and hinder. It's all fictional, right? Um, but, but it gives us a picture inside this like, sort of spiritual world. And so, um, so they're talking about God as the enemy and what God's strategies and plans are. And so what he essentially says about humility is, he says, hey, if, if, you, uh, if somebody wants to become humble, that's good. Um, force them towards humility, but make them think that humility means that, that, a, that a, a pretty girl believes she's ugly or that a smart guy believes that he's stupid. Let them think that that's what humility is and put them on that endless hamster wheel of trying to pursue that and work that out and to believe that they aren't what God created them to be. That's the best way to hinder them. But, but don't ever let them figure out that what true humility is is this. He says that, that in true humility... That someone, um, let me read this part because it's, it's important to get it right. Uh, he wants to bring the man, God wants to bring the man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than he would have been 
if it had been done by someone else. The enemy wants him in the end to be so free from any bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly, frankly and gratefully as in his neighbor's talents. Essentially says, to be truly humble means that you can do great things without it blowing up your own sense of worth and value. That you're free to do truly great things for God's glory and not for your own. To use every ounce of talent that God has given you, every skill, every ability, and not be consumed by it and destroyed by it. The reality is, for many of us, the, the worst thing in earth that could happen to us is for us to be super successful. Because then our ego explodes, our, our head blows up, we become very proud, we become very self-righteous, we tend to think that we're the captains of our own destiny. But I pray that God would make us humble enough that he could do great things through us and it wouldn't destroy us. Right? That's, that's our desire. And so that ties back into the beginning of the passage where he talks about what qualities are we looking for in a leader. He says, leaders be humble. This is essentially what he says, right? Shepherd the flock, feed and watch over them, exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering, but being examples to the flock, and with a full awareness that Jesus is the chief shepherd. You're not, you're not the shepherd. I'm not the shepherd of this church. <laughs> Jesus is the shepherd of this church. I work for him. And, and when I understand my job properly, my job is to help you to know him better. Not to domineer, not to say do this, but do something else in my own private life. The, the biggest call on me is to be an example, to strive to live up to the example of Jesus Christ and encourage you to do the same. That's what a, a pastor, that's what a leader of a church should do. That's what a good shepherd does. And as we talked about earlier, so many of these, these failures that we see are when people start to think that it's their church, that it's about them that it exists to bring them glory. That the number of likes they get on their online sermon or the number of followers they have or the number of people that visit their website, that somehow that's defining who they are. That's not how a pastor is meant to be measured, right? And we don't know outwardly, right? So I'm not saying a judgment over any mega church pastor, right? Some of those guys are mega church pastors because they were humble enough that God knew that he could use them for that position and it wouldn't destroy them, Right? But my prayer for each one of us is that wherever God has placed us, that he would make us humble enough to be able to do it greatly with incredible excellence in a way that changes the world, but in a way that doesn't change us, that keeps us humble. I'm going to invite the band to come. We're going to close in some worship. But, it, but as we do, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't point you to uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, which really mirrors the same sentiment, but says it explicitly. Ultimately, what he says is, look to Jesus Christ. He is our example. He says in, in Philippians 2, he says, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was the most humble man who ever walked the face of the earth. He was the greatest man who ever walked the face of the earth. The path of humility that he embraced led him to uh, raise Lazarus from the dead, led him to feed the 5,000, led him to walk on water, but it also led him to death on a cross. But after he died, he was exalted by God. He humbly placed his exaltation into the hands of his father. He resisted every temptation to exalt himself. Satan said, hey, raise yourself up and, and I'll bow down and worship you. And Jesus says, I'll be exalted when God exalts me. His is the example that we're called to follow. Will you join me in prayer?